Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts, brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union. Getting hitched? Cartmacross Credit Union likes to say I do when financing your wedding loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or cartmacrosscu.ie. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, morning, the 31st 31st of May. May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. 320 families have moved out of emergency accommodation so far this year. But clearly the government needs to do more, according to the Housing Minister, Owen Murphy. This is because the number of people who are homeless continues to rise. There were 73 more people in emergency accommodation in April than there was in March. The number gets higher every month, month on month, in fact. Over the last three years, uh, the homeless figures have worsened. The latest figures say there are 10,378 people who are homeless in the country. It's the worst figure on record. Let's talk about this uh, with uh, the Minister of State at the Department of Housing, Damien English TD, who's on the line. And good morning to you, Minister, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. I'm sure, uh, like uh, the Senior Minister, you're disappointed by the outcome of uh, the efforts uh, that uh, have resulted in more people being homeless. Oh, naturally, Michael. And first of all, I want to apologise for the cloaky voice all week since, uh, since all the campaign in the last couple of weeks. Look, to be very clear on this, uh, nobody is happy with, when there's still mer- people living in emergency accommodation. So every month when the figures are published, naturally, uh, we want them to be much lower. We want them to be at zero. We don't want anybody, and certainly any families or any children, children living in emergency accommodation. So all we do is to, is to every month focus in on finding more houses and more homes and more solutions for people who are without a house. That's our aim. That's our efforts. And we'll, we have to continue doing that. And, and we've always said this will take time to get ahead. Um, we are making progress on supply, but we're not making progress on the overall number of people who are in emergency accommodation because every week, even though we house many people, and uh, many more are still becoming homeless for all the different reasons we went through the last time. The only stat that probably that might help here a little bit is that this time last year, we were probably finding a, a house for one and two people or a home for one and two of those who presented as homeless. Um, so there was constantly an extra 50% of an increase, whereas this year we're finding a solution for uh, two out of every three uh, homeless people or people who prevent as, present as homeless in that month. So we're, we're making progress in the right direction, but there's still more people 
every every month becoming homeless for different reasons. Uh, and we have to, again, we have to intervene in many different ways, which we're doing. The main issue here is around the supply of housing. And I will repeat it again, mm-hmm. Michael, because it's important. This year ahead of us, we know we will be producing over 10,000 new social homes. A combination... Not enough. Over- you'll, you'll never make progress if you continue at this pace. That's the view of Peter McVerry. He well, told, okay, he, he told me so yesterday. Let's just hear him say that. Okay. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't know what's wrong with my machine, but that's uh, exactly what he said. That's uh, yeah. Well, a well listen, I, I've shared I've shared a lot of debates with, with Peter, Peter McCurry on a new number of occasions. Okay, and he keeps saying the government aren't doing enough. Can I want to give a couple of points on that? Mm. Right. Since we started rebuilding Ireland, over seventy-two thousand homes have been found through all the schemes. That is seventy-two thousand families who are in a house today that were, were not in a, would not be in a house if we didn't intervene. If the government didn't put a housing plan together two and a half years ago. Now, what's that in local terms? In Mead, it's 3,085 families are in houses today that would not have been in a house if we didn't intervene two and a half years ago. In Loud, it's 3,181. And they're the number of families who we are helping. So I don't agree with Father McVerry that we're not intervening. And I've listened to him and I've sat with him mm. and, he, and I've also listened to him um, give wrong information. Uh, and again yesterday, uh, he made a point about mortgage to rent schemes, which mm. I want to come in on that as well. So because mm. I think we have to dispute wrong information. I accept those own monthly so of the government, that month on month we're still not there. We have a long way to go. No one's denying that. But we were asked two and a half years ago by every political party, by every housing organisation, every NGO, to get housing supply to 10,000 social houses a year. We were told that's the magic number. That was everyone's ask. Yeah. This year, two and a half years on, we're at that. And we are committed with taxpayers' money to go beyond that next year and the year after. Okay, but the, the, the point he was making is that the pace is too slow and that you're not going anywhere very okay, quickly uh, and that the figures continue yeah. to worsen month on month and they've been getting worse every month for the last three years. The point he was making about uh, mortgage holders is that there's 42,000 mortgages in arrears uh, that he's concerned about. Uh, people who he's concerned may end up homeless uh, and he says uh, that the terms of the mortgage to rent scheme are too restrictive. Yeah, okay. A couple of points there. Uh, of course we all agree it's not quick enough the supply of housing but we don't have a magic pen. We put in place a five-year plan to deliver 50,000 new social houses, uh, brand new social houses built. And separate to that, then, we drew through all the other schemes where 87 other thousand houses will be rented and vacant and so on brought back into the system. But Peter McFerry's own organisation, their five-year plan, which, which again, we, we fund and we, we, we tell them there's no limit on what they can have in terms of housing projects, they bring in 100 a year. They, their five-year plan was for 500 houses. So they, too find it difficult to bring in supply of housing because it does take time to generate a supply of housing. I wish, of course we wish that we could produce them all in in a year. It doesn't work that way. But Mm. when you analyse the trends of plan of emissions, bills, um, new houses coming into the system, this year we will reach that 25,000 total houses in the country of new supply of housing and that's an important place to be at. We want that to be at about 28,000 houses every year but we're on track to get to that and that's the only way you can do this. It's year on year is to build on progress. It cannot be done in one year. Nobody is saying that. I've seen no party, nobody else coming out with the magic bullet to solve this. I wish somebody had it, because trust me, we would do it as a government if there was a quicker way to do this. In relation to the mortgage arrears, and again, I, I, the reason I, I, I highlight that as an issue that I'm concerned with is because mm. I am listening now to, to people in, in other political parties, maybe mainly Fianna Fáil, and others as well, commenting that there'd be tens of thousands a year uh, being thrown out by the banks. 
And that's not the case. And that hasn't happened. Okay? Yes, there are about 45,000 mortgages uh, in arrears, in long-term arrears, little under 10% of all the mortgages out there. But we as a government have intervened with many schemes to keep people in those homes. And the mortgage to rent scheme, and Father McFerry said yesterday it needs to be changed. He knows that we've made the changes to that. He sat with me a few weeks ago on a, on a debate in Kerry where we, where we went through the changes in that scheme and he accepted that we've made good changes to it and that they will work. So he knows that. But still he gives this fear that there's 40,000 people going to turn out of the house. So he's a scaremonger, so is he? Uh, no, no, Michael, I, I don't want to deal with the facts here, please. Well, uh, My well, job well, is, well I'm, I'm asking you uh, to yeah, clarify what you're yeah, saying, uh, because he yeah. said that the terms of the scheme need to, to be uh, amended so that more people can qualify. I can uh, and you're saying that they have been uh, I can amended. Speak from, yes, Michael, I can speak for what So I'm asking you, I, are you I, saying that he's a scaremonger? I, I am saying that I have listened to people, many people, and politicians for the last three years, given the impression that there's tens of thousands of people going to be put out of their houses every year. Mm. That hasn't happened for the last three years, and it won't be happening, because we as a government have intervened. But you said that, you, you no, said that Peter McFerry was falsely giving the impression that people were going to be forced out of their homes because they wouldn't qualify this for this scheme, and that what he was trying to do was frighten people. I didn't say use the word frighten. The impression he gave yesterday was that there's about 40,000 people going to put out of their homes. I'm saying he and others have re- repeatedly said that over the years, and the stats don't back that up. There aren't thousands and ten thousands of people put out of their homes. That hasn't happened because we've intervened with protections. Now, I want to be very clear. People have to, at all times, try and pay their mortgage. When a mortgage becomes unsustainable, mm. as a government, we've set up the mortgage to rent scheme. We have changed it. Mm. That was another part of my area of work over the last year, year and a half ago. We have changed the rules. Peter McBarry sat with me a few weeks ago and acknowledged we've made those changes. Now, there are still um, certain um, cash categories and, and certain criteria you have to meet to qualify for that. Mm. Your mortgage has to he be He says it's too restrictive. Well, again, Michael, just to be very clear here, mm. if a mortgage is unsustainable, if a person mm. would otherwise qualify for social housing, the mortgage to rent scheme uh, can, can intervene and people are kept in their family home. Just in short, what happens is through the approved housing bodies, through the local authorities, the state buys your home and it's rented so back. So he, he, he's wrong. He, he's just well, wrong. Well, is he? Well, when he I says it's too say, restrictive, he's wrong, is he? I'm saying it's wrong. There mm. are criteria mm. there, yeah. right? Mm. And, and, and to be clear now, there's a second mortgage to rent scheme that is operated in a private capacity that's not government-backed. That's for other people who don't qualify under the social housing scheme. Mm. So there are two different attempts here to mortgage to rent. I believe it's a, it's, it's a great scheme and should be, should be a lot more successful a lot of people show interest in it and then for different reasons don't follow through on that. He, 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 but the scheme is there and it's there to help people. That's what you, he you, you obviously listened to Peter McVerry's interview yesterday, Mr. Uh, no, and he said, he said that you have the wherewithal to solve this, but you don't have uh, the will to solve it uh, because uh, there isn't uh, the pressure on Fine Gael as a, a, a party to do so, and the local elections are a good example of that. I think you won an additional 20 seats. Last time I spoke to you, I said you couldn't blame anybody if they voted anybody but Finnegal because of your record on housing, and clearly I was wrong. Uh, people don't care, it seems. No, I think, sorry, my wife, I think you're not wrong. People do care. And, and well, I they continue to, to vote for Finnegal. Michael, please, you asked me four questions there. First of all, this acquisition, uh, acquisition by Father McVerry or anybody else that we don't care and we don't want to solve it, it's just really a silly comment. And I've listened to that now from loads of people. I listen to it in the Dáil every week as well. 
And I've, I've, again, I've heard Donald McVeary and many others saying the same thing. Why would we not want to solve it? We no, are I'm saying the electorate. Like, I'm saying the no, electorate no, voted no, for the no. party that is overseeing the housing crisis. Yeah, but, uh, but the acquisition is made of us as a government that we don't care and we don't want to do this. No, I'm saying that, that wasn't the, the question, Minister. The, uh, I referred back to what I asked you uh, going into the elections, was, which was, could you blame anybody if they voted uh, okay, uh, for uh, anybody uh, but Fine Gael because of housing? And that clearly didn't happen. They voted right. for Fine Gael. Okay, sorry, Michael. Yeah, look, look, two things on that. We, we've had quite a successful election. We won an extra 20 seats. And we're very strong in European. We would, would look like we're going to win five seats as well. But I, if, we, if you remember the last time we yeah. spoke, Michael, because there are two things here. People do care. And people have spoke to me and every door I knocked on all over Mead about the housing, housing situation. They asked me, what are we doing? And I explained to them. And I explained to them that we are on track to solve this. That we are committing their money, taxpayers' money, to solving this. And I did say to you on this program, when we discussed these figures about a month ago, you asked me what would people do. Mm. And I asked that the public would actually look at what we are doing and judge us on how we are trying to solve this. Yeah, they did. They, did. they did. And they did. They rewarded they you. Recognize. They rewarded you for 10,378 people being homeless. They rewarded you. They gave you an extra 20 seats. But that's fewer than Fine Gael had hoped for. Uh, and uh, I understand uh, from the Irish Times today that Pascal Donoghue told the Parliamentary Party meeting this week that that is going to result in Fine Gael's strategies being overhauled for the next general election. Some people took that to mean that some existing names won't be on the ticket next time around. Do you think Maria Bailey will be on the ticket next time okay. around? Michael, again, you're, you're asking me loads of questions. Can I, can I just say, first of all... I only asked one. I, yeah, but there's two things. I don't and never have commented on parliamentary party meetings because they're private meetings, OK? But <laughs> and in relation to... No, there's, sorry, Michael, but in, in relation to the issue about where we reward it, people are voted for many different reasons. I'm saying... On the housing one, I think mm. most people who reasonably look at what we're trying to do here understand that we are committed to fixing this. We have put the plans in place which are mm. resulting in houses coming on this year and next year and the year after, that we are intervening. And naturally, everybody I meet says to me, Damien, it would be great if this could happen quicker. And we all agree on that. Mm. But most people are logical. They understand it takes a little bit of time uh, to start building houses again after 10 years of not building Do you believe, uh, Minister, that Maria Bailey will be a Fine Gael candidate in the next general election? I, I, I have no idea, Michael. Would we'll you like her to be? I, 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 Maria Bailey at the moment is a sitting TD. And I expect we'll go for re-election. Would you, yes, like, they're, they're, would you like her to represent your I, party in the next general she, election? She they have a local convention, had a Fine Gael members, and she is a candidate, and I expect she will be a candidate. And I think Maria has at this stage come out and explained her situation. I think she would probably get involved more around that as well. There is an investigation in our party as well. This is an issue that affects an mm. awful lot of companies and businesses in my area mm. insurance as well. I think well, this conversation... Down left, right sorry, and centre. Sorry, Michael. Thankfully, with some of the changes, with some of the great work done by Linda Moy and her team and some of the other changes, mm. some of these businesses are not closing down. And we have to, as a government, move to, to prevent more uh, businesses from closing down because mm. of insurance costs. We are going to intervene here. And this debate this week as difficult as it has been for Maria. So it's Bailey. not that you'd like her to run as a candidate, and it's not that you wouldn't like her to run as a candidate. It's, it's, it's the choice of her candidate herself. And the but you don't have an opinion she, on it. She, she is a candidate, Michael. Yes. My opinion on this is but, that we But, but there, there, there's a suggestion today that some names could be removed. Uh, would you like Maria Bailey's name to be removed from the ticket, or would you like her no, name I, to I, stay I on the ticket, or do you not care? Okay, to be, to be very clear, Michael, I don't really believe her name will be removed and I don't think it should be. I think it's important that we deal with the issue here and, and the culture that people, you know, that, that's out there, that people assume if, if they're hurt, 
that they are entitled to compensation. Would you that like to know about the advice that Maria Bailey was given and would you like Josepha Madigan to make a statement on it? You're jumping on me those questions. Can I just answer, please? To me, right, we have to focus in around what is driving insurance costs to go up. But one part of that is people who, who genuinely are hurt, and Maria Bailey said that, so she was hurt, no one is shooting that, and she felt she was entitled to compensation. People have to realise, and many others, and this is why I think the debate this week might be helpful, that just because you're hurt... Do you believe she was entitled to compensation? No, no Michael, absolutely. let me finish, please. Oh, no, what no, no, but, 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 but it's a very important point. Uh, you said that, that she I'm was saying. hurt and she believed she was entitled to compensation. Yeah, From what do you understand of it? Do you believe she was entitled to compensation? Yes, no, what, I don't, my, what I'm saying to you is I don't agree that if you're hurt, that if you're hurt, you're automatically entitled to compensation. Uh, and do you believe do you believe that she was entitled to compensation? I'm, I'm not going to judge her case. What I'm saying to you is there is a cause. Well, she withdrew uh, her case. Yes, and I'm glad she did. Why? Okay, and, I'm, and because I think it's important that we have a conversation around around this mm-hmm. and try and bring around a cultural well, wh- change. Why are you glad she withdrew her case? Because in in my view, okay, and I think this is what's important. We have to. There's a lot of companies mm-hmm. here under serious pressure with insurance mm. because of different types of claims but also that there's a there's a, a culture in this country now that if you're hurt that it's you're, you're that you that you seek compensation and sometimes we have to look at what you know what's involved in you being hurt in the first place even though we acknowledge you was hurt and rebelly said that as well mm. but it doesn't so you, mean that you had that you were, so you so, were so as you understand it you don't believe that she was entitled to compensation and that's why you're glad she withdrew her claim. I am not I'm not judging anyone. What about the I advice? Can't. What about the advice she was given? Uh, do you want to hear from Minister Josepha Madigan? I can just just to be very clear. I do not know who Maria Bailey solicitors were. I've no idea. Okay. If it Maria was Josepha Madigan's sorry. firm, do you want to hear from them? That's the fourth I, I time I've asked you, Minister. I, I it's it's none of my business who her legal team are or what advice they've given. What I want is that we have you don't to want to know if a government minister was involved in advising somebody to take a claim which you believe uh, shouldn't have resulted in compensation and you're glad that she withdrew that claim. Michael, can I be very clear here? Yes, please, no please, uh, please answer the question and that would be the clearest thing you could do because I've asked you five there times now, Minister. No, I don't, you're, you're just throwing a load of comments to the honest. No, I mean, I've asked you one question five okay. times. I'll yeah. ask it a sixth time. Would you like to hear from Josepha Madigan in relation to the advice Maria Bailey received, the legal advice Maria Bailey received? I, I don't know who Maria Bailey's solicitor was. That's not the question. And to be very clear here, there are no cabinet ministers uh, operating as solicitors today no. So you've asked me, do I want to have a minute? There are none doing that today, okay? What I've said to you is, around this, because I, 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 I'm involved in this in, in the campaign, I've been working with Linda Murray, and I okay. wish I could do a more help for her, but I know the difficulties that they're going okay. through in the organisation, and they've been trying to get... Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you the question a, a seventh time, Minister. Before, before you leave us, uh, uh, can I just ask you for a, a yes-no answer to one question before you leave us this morning, Minister? Will you come back and uh, debate uh, the North-South Interconnector with uh, the campaign group? Uh, Michael, I've said to you numerous occasions, and I've been involved in, and I've debated many, many times, uh, on your program, which which the the various yeah. and that as well, and I've I've no problem doing that when it's appropriate. So we'll, we'll, I, well, I, is it appropriate? Will you will you agree to do that with Porrick O'Reilly, or that Regina Doherty will do it with Porrick O'Reilly, I'm, or that Helen McEntee will do it with Porrick O'Reilly? I'm, I'm, because we were in a situation going into an election where the group were raising it as a, an election issue, one that they say you and the other ministers in this region are responsible for creating, and nobody was available to debate it. A, a, a really incredible situation, Minister, uh, to the minds of most people. 
Okay, well, Michael, just to, just to be clear in relation to how your program works, you are running a local election. There was a lo- it, in my view, uh, this it was not a local le- election issue. I got a call once to ask could I go on a program. I probably quite short notice to be honest with you. I, and you know, I try to respond when I can. I couldn't on that day. Okay. I, I have a many. Sorry, Michael, just to be clear here now, I have many. On many other cases, come on to the major program. I will do that again in the future. And once you chair it independently, which of course you yep. always do. Okay, so will, will, will one of the ministers uh, come on the program over the I'm course sure. of the next week or two to discuss this with Paul O'Reilly? I, 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 I have no problem coming on uh, and we can arrange okay. once we have a proper independent discussion on this. And again, to be clear, uh, please, it's not we'll look forward to that, Minister. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is going on a long, long number of years and to many, many different governments as well. And I think you'll recognise. I've been on many times and I've never said no to come on when I can do it at proper time. On the brink of an election, though, Minister, it was an important time for somebody out of the three local ministers to come forward and it didn't happen. I think, Michael, to be fair, if you might check your records, you might just see how much notice I was asked to come on the debate. Right, just check that, please, because, you know, I do have, and you know, I know you understand this, I mean, I do have sometimes my diaries booked up quite a lot. I think I was asked either the evening before or that morning to come on and and I couldn't commit to that. And, you know, I've always offered to come on any chance I can. Again, similar to today, I was asked to come on yesterday. I couldn't come on yesterday. So you facilitated me to come on today. That wasn't the offer the last time. So I am always available for debates on any issue I can, okay. once they're fair and logical debates. And I think you know that, to be fair to you. OK, Minister, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Minister of State at uh, the Department of Housing, Damien English, uh, Finnegal TD in Mead West. Michael Reed on LMFM. People working in shops uh, deal with uh, aggressive and violent customers, it seems, all of uh, the time. The Convenience Stores and News Agents Association has been holding its annual conference in Kalini in Dublin and a survey of some 1,820 of its members found that 43% of them said that they had an incident of that store, of that sort, in their store in the course of the last month. Vincent Jennings is the Chief Executive Officer of the Convenience Stores and News Agents Association. He's on the line and a very good morning to you, Vincent, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. When you talk about aggressive and violent customers, what what exactly are you talking about? Good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, Michael, just on that matter, the aggressive, the threatening, the violent, that actually is 84% in the last in the last year um, so 43% in the last month. So, you know, it is 8 out of 10 retailers are finding that there are people coming into their stores and are acting in a fashion that would be uh, considered by the courts to have been aggressive or violent or threatening. It is uh, jumping the counter. It is uh, walking out of the store uh, having stolen matters. It is acting in an aggressive fashion uh, to, the, to, to the staff. It is acting in a feral fashion. We're not talking about somebody having an argument over the price of mm. something. We're talking about people acting in an, an absolutely unacceptable fashion, Michael. All right, and uh, the idea of somebody walking out of uh, the store uh, provoking the staff uh, who seem to have uh, little recourse is commonplace. I was reading of uh, one of about one of your members uh, who said that they'd been to court on eight occasions over one individual who had yeah. 95 previous convictions who had robbed his store three times. That, that, that's that's quite quite typical. Uh, recently, uh, two days ago in the courts, we had somebody who had went into a store with a meat cleaver, having had between himself and his nephew 134 convictions 
for, 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 for different masses, uh, including many of them with violent and aggressive behaviour. Uh, and the question really is, is, how serious are our protectors, our guardie, our judiciary and our legislators in protecting us as a community, in protecting our staff, in protecting our customers and in protecting our businesses? You know, it's, it's all very well the, the, mm. the pious platitudes of, you know, you're the important backbone of, 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 of the community and everything like that. Do something, do something about it. And we're looking for and we're calling for, we're resurrecting the old, the, the, the Ed, Mayor Ed Koch say, we're looking for zero tolerance. That's, that's the mantra that we have to well, have. What's the percentage at the moment? If you're looking for zero, what is the percentage of tolerance oh, yeah, at the yeah, moment? Because, yeah, well, I mean, is there any consequence that, yeah. for some crime? I mean, if I walk into your shop and uh, steal a, a bag of crisps, is there any consequence no, at all? No, none absolutely whatsoever. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely none. Because, for a start, the Gardaí, possibly quite rightly mm. so, will consider that bringing, bringing a, a case to court for a bag of crisps would be considered to be, it'd be laughed out by the, by the judge. But the trouble about why? it is that... Why, why would it be laughed out by the judge? Thank you, thank you, thank you, Michael. You're on my line, right? Mm. I'm not defending the situation. Mm. We, need to ha- we need to be as clear as if you steal, regardless of yeah. what it is. And I know that we used to look at, mm. in horror, the Victorian times and people being uh, transported to Van Diemen's line for a But we actually... If, if, the way the people are going now, and with some small section, and it is a small, small mm. percentage, but they're getting away with these things all the way that it moves and moves on, and it escalates, and they become more and more lawless because nobody is actually calling. It's the act of theft that is the crime. It's not the yeah. value of what's being robbed. It's a little bit like right. uh, breaking into a, a bank uh, when nobody is there overnight and robbing £10 million. You'll do a lot of time in prison for that, but if you break into someone's house at night and steal €20, Euro and terrorise, leave people terrorised, in particular pensioners terrorised, and there's little or no consequence because it's £20 compared to a, a million or £10 million. That's right. That's right. And, and, and it's not a mm. victimless crime. I mean, mm. yeah, there are people who have lost themselves. They've, they've felt unable to continue their work in the store, which has been the subject of this. Uh, you know, so mm. that's, that's got an effect. It's got an effect upon the customer when they're watching this type of goal. And if you're, watching, if you're watching but aren't watching close enough, you could end up being prosecuted from what I've oh, been yeah. reading as well. And if I, if, if I go into buy a, basis, if I go yeah. to rob a bag of crisps and I, I go to put them in my coat pocket or you think I put them in my coat pocket and then you approach me and you don't find any crisps on me, I yeah. can sue you. 3,000 euro. 3,000 to 5,000 euro straight away. That's a, that's a defamation because somebody considers that the that the good name of this person, who may well have a string of convictions, as long as that conviction isn't for <laughs> shoplifting. It's crazy. That, no, but there has been a, there was a case not too long ago yeah, in Limerick yeah. with a supermarket. The security yeah. man stopped the person from coming in, and he sued him for defamation. Mm. He sued he sued the, the supermarket for defamation and the security, and there was a five thousand award given because this guy who had convictions for assault had convictions mm. for a lot of, but not for shoplifting was. His good name was blackened by this person. Can you imagine that? That's no, how we no, are. we no. need to turn it around. Yeah, actually, actually, I can I can imagine it. I was hearing uh, of how people in Trim are being terrorised by six and seven year olds in the program yesterday. So uh, at this stage, uh, I suppose uh, there's nothing uh, that uh, you wouldn't believe. Uh, but uh, yeah, and this is not. I mean, as time. you say, I mean, yeah, you yeah, speak yeah, of yeah, Trim, and it yeah, could be yeah, Kells, yeah, or it yeah, could be yeah, Dunleer, yeah. it could be anything. Uh, you know, there, that it is not limited to uh, Dublin 1 or Dublin 2. or a, mm. It is a nationwide problem and our members are nationwide and they're experiencing this and they're 
their shops, their businesses mm. and their staff and the customers within this are experiencing this. And it is time to actually call it out and make make a condition uh, uh, of bail and make ASBO's con- uh, antisocial mm. be- uh, behaviour orders, make them available to shops mm. uh, to, to, to exclude a person from. And it is a, it is a, a an offence to go back into a store that you've been barred from. Make uh, it uh, and to make it a crime to steal a bag of crisps or yeah, whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Vincent, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us. Thanks Vincent so Jennings, Thank Chief Executive Officer of the Convenience Stores and News Agents Association. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing, uh, the AIM2 leader, Patrick Tobin, who's a TD for Meath West, has been complaining uh, about uh, the number of people who are waiting for home support services, 6,238 such people. Patrick Tobin joins us now. A very good morning to you. It's a, a long waiting list, obviously, uh, and I think 86 up on January. Yeah, home support services uh, are extremely important. They're some of the most important services that the HSE provides. Um, so they allow for older people to stay in their homes. And um, they're also incredibly important for people who have long-term ailments or disabilities. And many people will know that um, for older people, it is far healthier and better for them to be able to stay in their homes for as long as possible. And many families will want just um, to have you know, their, their, their loved ones at home with them. Um, and we believe that it's really important that the government invests in home care packages. Um, for a start, it's, it's economically sensible as well, because if a person is able to be looked after at home, typically they, they remain in better health. And then they don't have to uh, go into the nursing home uh, services or they don't have to go into the health services. And we know the nursing home services are under pressure themselves. It's estimated that in the next five years, there will be 7,000 a shortage in nursing home beds uh, in the state. And we also know there's major pressure with regards to the, 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 um, the pressures on uh, beds in hospitals. Last year, there was 100,000 people uh, who were on trolleys uh, last year due to the lack of beds available to them. So it makes perfect sense economically. It makes perfect sense on the basis of health, and it makes perfect sense on the basis of just family care that loved ones, mm. uh, older people, remain at home. And we know from the, the parliamentary question that I put in, uh, a couple of weeks ago, that there's 164 people waiting uh, for uh, home support uh, currently in County Mead. And that's a figure that's far too much. And I, around this time last year, I think there were around 20,000 fewer hours available in the county than would have been uh, available the year previous. So I gather that's feeding into these numbers. Exactly. So in other words, it's very clear that the money is, is simply not there. And uh, it's like a whole lot of the health service. It's not getting the money that it, it's needed. Now, I've worked it out. Eliminating the waiting lists for home care packages would cost about 18 million euros to the government uh, on an annual basis. And 18 million euros in the whole scheme of the investment within the HSE is not a massive amount of money. And I would actually, I would actually uh, say that the government are actually losing money. It's costing the government money by not eradicating the waiting list in this regards, because, as I said earlier, other services are far more under pressure uh, as a result. Okay, uh, the dust settling on uh, the election results. Uh, what do you think of AIM 2's performance? Just three councillors uh, selected out of 957. 
Well, first of all, we're delighted with the results that we achieved. Uh, within 20 weeks, we have built a national organisation around the country, uh, which is a phenomenal uh, achievement in its own right. And we contested about 53 constituencies in the south out of about 166, so just under a third. And in those constituencies, we averaged about 5% of the vote. Now, 5% of the vote is a, a, a great response. Mm. Uh, indeed, actually, people are talking about the green wave that happened uh, for the Greens, who achieved 5% of the yeah, vote. They got, in, in, they got in the, seats, though. They got 40-something seats. Uh, you contested 53 electoral areas and got three seats, 0.3% of uh, the vote. Well, first of all, it's important to say that uh, 5% of the vote is, is a massive foundation, but it's also an awkward number with regards uh, winning seats because typically in a, an LEA, local election area, a seat is won on 6 or 7% mm. of the vote. And as a result, when you get 5% of the vote, you typically just come short of actually taking a seat. And right around the country, we hit the crossbar this time. Uh, we had first-time candidates in a first-time political party who were getting 800 uh, and 900 votes in constituencies. But you have 0.3% of the out. seats. But, but the, I suppose the point is what your, your expectation for a brand new party. Do you think that in five years from now you might be as big a party as, let's say, Renewa? Well, I'll give you an example. In 1985, the Green Party won one seat. And five years later... They won two seats. Mm. I joined. But the Green Sinn Party Fein. is a European movement. It is, yeah. and I joined Sinn Fein, for example, mm. in uh, 1997, when they had two percent of the vote, when they had one TD and just a handful of councillors. Mm. And in actual fact, Aintu were in a very, very similar situation. So we topped the poll, for example, in Cavan Monaghan uh, with Sarah O'Reilly, 1,700 mm. votes for a first uh, a woman in her first but time election. Aintu is a Catholic Republican party, is it not? No, and, and unfortunately, you know, that kind of baloney is it's only... It's not baloney. Uh, the only coverage of AIM 2's uh, success or lack of it in the elections is in the Irish Catholic... Well, and you're, that, covering, uh, you're covering it now. Well, that's because you're, that you're, you, you, you're a local TD. The only, Michael, uh, apart it, it, from it, this it, interview, it, it, the only coverage of your uh, success in the elections was in the Irish Catholic, and it blames the media. First of all, that's not the only only coverage, uh, Michael. It's been covered in a number of different newspapers. And it's really important that that lie that you stated earlier, that we're a Catholic anti-abortion party, is actually put to bed. Because if anybody reads... I didn't actually say that. I said you were a Catholic Republican party. A Catholic Republican party. We are a secular, pluralist political party. We have people who are members of our party who are Catholic, who are Protestant, who are Muslim, who are Jew, and who are atheists. And we welcome people of all... Uh, religious backgrounds and none and our attitude is that well, everybody support from the Irish Catholic obviously uh, because of uh, your views on abortion everybody in the state is entitled to be who they are to their, to their full extent without fear or favour be they Catholic or atheist and it's really important because sometimes when journalists like yourselves repeat these mantras sometimes these mantras start to stick in people's minds I just and made it, that it, one it, up I, I wasn't it, repeating I just made it up uh, because well, I, I look to see what I look to see what kind of coverage you were getting and all I could see was coverage in the Irish Catholic and it was blaming the media well you didn't look hard enough Michael because yeah. if you if you look we're actually covered in the sun we're covered uh, in the uh, the Irish Times and in the in the Independent as well the point of the, of the, this political party is there is a significant chunk of Irish society who are not represented among Fianna Fáil voters or, or Fianna Gael or Sinn Féin anymore. And if you look at our votes across the country, we took votes from 
Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil mostly. And if you look at the analysis of it, the big fall in the Sinn Féin vote in many constituencies was as a result of former Sinn Féin uh, voters actually mm. coming on board with Ain Two across the country. Well, I think Sinn Féin felt your presence in Navan. Uh, I <clears> think that's undisputed. But uh, if you look uh, at it, our, our candidate in Ashburn yeah. uh, polled higher than the Sinn Féin candidate there. And if you mm. look at it, you know, if if you added the Ain Two can uh, vote and the Sinn Féin vote together, you would probably have achieved the same vote as Sinn Féin got in 2014. Okay, I'm and, over and, time. And the result of that is because of the leadership of Sinn Féin is refusing to listen to the grassroots, so many of these voters are starting to migrate towards our political party. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Patrick O'Bain, a TD for Meath West and leader of the AIM2 party. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. Lots of people in touch in relation to the housing problem. Marie from Drogheda, how can Damien English and Owen Murphy stand over these homeless figures? They don't seem to be able to get to grips with the problem. The high rents are going to force more people into emergency accommodation unless something is done fast. Lisa from Navin, the government is not doing enough in any shape or form. They've let the banks sell people's mortgages even when people were complying with the banks and that mortgage to rent scheme is a joke. You're saying people should go for the mortgage to rent scheme but what happens when people are refused it after waiting for two years, she says. Um, I'm listening in. Uh, can you tell me what classes as being homeless? As back 30 years ago, I lived in a mobile home. I was then moved into a council house, which I bought and sold and bought another home. And I was a woman with two children on my own. I've no sympathy for people who don't pay the mortgage or even try to, as I know a few people who don't bother Michael. Do you class them as homeless if they have a roof over their head? Let it be a family home and a mobile home or a rented accommodation because I don't. Okay, Michael, please let people answer. Or do you like the sound of your own voice, says a texter. Is Michael Reed, says another, trying to replace mm. Jeremy Kyle? Would he not learn to listen and not ask stupid questions? All right, uh, we'll uh, hand the programme over to the political parties. What we could do is split it into uh, separate sections uh, where they could uh, speak maybe for 15 minutes at a time, uncontested, uh, and let people make up their own minds. Maybe that would be a better idea, would it? I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's what people are, are suggesting. Uh, but 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 when you, you you don't ask questions or you allow people not to answer the questions that you're putting to them, that's uh, what I would consider to be a party political broadcast. Jack is aware of a house that uh, the, the people in it were put out by the banks four years ago. The house was lying idle for those years with the grass and gr- weeds growing into the windows. Now the council have compulsory bought the property and are going to spend a fortune doing it up. But it was in good condition originally and he feels that the taxpayer, as always, is going to pick up the bill. Okay, strong thoughts there. Hold uh, that thought for a moment though because uh, there's uh, the very grim prospect of uh, people losing their life to cancer. In fact, about 6,000 people will die this year from tobacco-related diseases. And if you just hold on a minute... 
Uh, about 10 people will die over the course of the next 60 seconds and 11 million cigarettes will have been smoked in that minute. Let's talk about all of this with Kevin O'Hagan, the Cancer Prevention Manager with the Irish Cancer Society, this World No Tobacco Day. Good morning to you, Kevin, and thanks for joining us. It's a message that's obviously being lost on about a billion people across the world. Yeah, on, on World No Tobacco Day, we, we want to take the opportunity really to remind people again of the, the seriousness of, of, of tobacco in our country. And, and thank you very much, Michael, for, for taking the call this morning. But, you know, we do need to remind people that, that tobacco is still the biggest preventable killer in Ireland. And as you said, 6,000 people dying from the disease. Disease is caused by smoking each year here in Ireland. And yet, it's true, we, we have made great progress. There's a lot less smokers in Ireland, thankfully. There's 80,000 80, people that have been able to, to quit over the last three years. And in fact, now there's more, there's, there's a million less smokers uh, in Ireland, um, uh, so ex-smokers. So things are improving, but I suppose on, on World No Tobacco Day, um, we want to take the opportunity again to encourage people to, to think about quitting. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. If, if they're smokers... It's obviously the, the single most important thing that they'll ever do, ever do for their health uh, and their well-being in the long term. But uh, again, as most, we want to take the opportunity to remind the government to, to invest in support and, uh, for, for, for smokers and help them to, to quit. Uh, we do know that, that um, many, many smokers want to quit. And in fact, four out of ten smokers made a quit attempt in the last year. Uh, and, and for many, it takes a number of attempts. Uh, it's a really difficult thing to do. Mm. Uh, well, so, giving, giving well, up smoking is easy. I do it every day. That was uh, the Mark Twain quote, wasn't it? Yes, exactly, yeah. And it, it's just mm. such a challenge for people. Mm. And, and sometimes it can take quite a number of attempts to do it. So we do need support for people. And we do know that there are there are strategies there that now can make a difference to people who want to quit. There, there are proven methods that help people. Um, so we do need to greater investment in, in, in community-based cessation programs. We need free uh, nicotine replacement mm. therapies. Uh, so we need... Now, I, I take it that message works to a degree, given how many smokers tried to quit uh, and how many smokers have tried to quit 
on several occasions but there are some smokers uh, of course Kevin who've tried everything and they'll tell you they tried everything several times and nothing works for them what would you say to them? I suppose it's about persistence. We do know that uh, it, for some people we're hearing it takes almost about five or six different attempts. Um, everything has to be right. You need to be in a good frame of mind. You need to really prepare for it. You, may, you need to make a real solid decision. This is it. You set a date. You get support. You use the, 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 the proven methods. There are plenty of medications and, and nicotine replacement therapies available now for people. Uh, they do work, and, and the evidence is telling they do work if they're used properly. Uh, and, and, and people are supported perhaps through, through the family and through group, group support. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's about all of that, putting all that in place. And unfortunately, many people don't put all that in place when they make a quit attempt. So it's about getting all of those things right. Uh, and, and we do hear so many positive stories. And, and as again, you know, we have 80,000 people who have managed to quit over the last three years. So it, it was, it, it's supposed the message is not to lose not to, not to get discouraged and to keep trying because someday it, it will you, you will get over the line. All right, and maybe think about the savings for that matter because they're absolutely. very expensive these huge days. Mo- yeah. It's a huge motivator yeah, for people, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You could have a, a summer holiday uh, and it cost you practically nothing. Uh, you could use the money you've saved uh, from... Uh, cigarettes uh, or giving up as uh, the case may be. Kevin, we leave there on this World No Tobacco Day and thank you indeed for joining us thank today. Kevin is uh, the Cancer Prevention Manager with uh, the Irish Cancer Society. That's Kevin O'Hagan. Now, back uh, to some more of the calls coming to us. Marie, what else have you got there? On the North-South Interconnector, which you also discussed with the Minister, Tommy... I didn't. Tommy... <laughs> <laughs> I discussed discussing it. You mentioned it. Just, it was I, mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> Tommy... Yeah. From... We're hoping to discuss it with the Minister and Porrick O'Reilly next week, maybe. OK, well, mm-hmm. Tommy phoned yeah. in. He's a farmer from yeah. County Meath and he says they can talk all they want about Airgrid, but until... And he says he's not a Fine Gael voter. He's, he, he is saying that, but he says until farmers who are Fine Gael voters stop voting for Fine Gael and give a strong message in relation to mm. the pylons that they will not see any change. He says his land is earmarked and nobody will be getting on his land. Did he vote for Nicole? He didn't. Oh, did he not? Okay, no, right. but he wouldn't be a Fine Gael voter. Ah, right. But okay, he says yeah, that, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. but those mm. who are complaining about the air grid mm. and will be affected need to make a stand. Why? At uh, election because, time. Because I know Fine Gael say... Uh, they support air grid and that the national policy is to overground the pylons. But all of the Fine Gael reps, all of the councillors and the candidates going into the elections or the elected TDs or ministers or whatever are completely opposed to it. So why would you vote against Fine Gael? You can have that conversation with the when you, when you're having the discussion next week, Michael. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not going to try and put forward one point of view mm, or yeah, another because mm. it's hard to comprehend. But any Tom, anyway, Tommy was is not too happy yeah. and he was very annoyed. So he's saying, don't interview. don't listen to what they say. Look at what they do. Exactly. God, there's, there, there's a thought. Actions My speak God. louder than words. My God. Uh, right, I, I, I would imagine uh, that following this morning's programme uh, we'll be discussing uh, why we're in this situation and why national policy is what it is uh, because of a Fine Gael government when Fine Gael representatives uh, are at odds with their own party's policies. Later uh, next week, I'm sure, at some stage. Okay. 
two more comments if I can. One on the Maria Bailey debacle. Jim from Dundalk says a couple of points. He believes that she was wrong to try and take the case but doesn't agree with the amount of stick that she's getting over. Thinks it's way over the top. Where, When you bear in mind our compo culture you'd wonder how many of those criticising her have taken claims themselves in the past mm. says Jim. But he says we need a complete change in our mindset in mm. relation to compensation in yeah. this country. And maybe we should lead by example. Um, <laughs> I'll go to one more on aim to. <laughs> you're, not, you're just not engaging with me today. All right, I'll I talk to myself. No, no, you yeah, know the, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't no, want to get myself in trouble. That's yeah, why yeah, I, yeah. you have that glint in your eye. You're in one of their moods today. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad I'm not a guest. Yeah. <laughs> No, going back mm. to Ain Two. Yep. Dermot phoned in and Dermot wants to know what is your problem with Ain Two being a Catholic party, if that's what it is. No, it's uh, not. If it is but what it's it not. is. But because if it is, you seem to have a problem with no, it. I, and I you don't. seem to have a problem no, with the party yeah, having yeah. Catholic people in it. No, I don't. No, okay. no, no, no. I described it as a Catholic Republican party. Uh, Padre Tobin had a problem with my description of that, saying it's a secular party with people of all faiths uh, and uh, that uh, they represent people from every section of society. So I just put the point to him because uh, it seemed to be getting support from the Irish Catholic newspaper uh, and I I thought maybe that's because of the views on abortion and they are seeing it as a Catholic party. So I thought maybe that was, you know, a correct presumption, but it was wrong. They're letting all... Oh, it's a secular party. Patrick Cobain said there are people of all faiths involved. Okay, Mm -hmm. there you go. Anyway, we'll finish on Dermot. All right, thanks Dermot and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 Michael Reed on LMFM. It would be wrong to say that the fallout from the Maria Bailey story has started a conversation about high insurance costs or the compo culture that there is in this country for that matter, but it has reignited that conversation. Neil MacDonald is the Chief Executive Officer of ISME, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. He's been writing extensively about this in the Daily Mail yesterday. He said there were five actors involved, insurers, judges, lawyers, politicians and us, the citizens. Neil is on the line and a very good morning to you, Neil, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, Tell us a a little bit about how you think you can, or the government could tackle all of this if they had the will to tackle it, because you're suggesting that politicians are part of the problem. They absolutely are, because most of it, and I, I, you're right to point out the five uh, areas I suggested were were uh, to, to blame or influence the current situation. But the reality of it is that uh, government or, or Dáil Éireann can influence all of them. Um, so there is effectively nothing here that can't be changed by amending the law. We have seen how doing that uh, addressed long-standing problems that we thought would never be surmounted like drunk driving and speeding uh, treatment of women in society and all those sorts of things yeah. uh, I, I pointed out the, the long-term changes that have been made in Ireland in seemingly intractable issues simply by changing the law and the culture around the law and it's it, it, we're faced with 
more or less the same sort of problem here, which is, uh, you, you know, Nicholas Kearns identified two problems in his uh, Personal Injuries Commission report last July. He said, on the one hand, awards are too high, and on the other hand, uh, it, there is no problem with uh, falsifying or exaggerating a claim uh, and, and claiming too much uh, mo- money or money you shouldn't, you should never have got in the first place, and there's no punishment for doing so. And you were saying yesterday that when people get a, a few bob out of a, a claim, the result of it is that we all suffer because we're living in a, a country where there's no run policies in schools. Playgrounds are closed. Fairs, marts and festivals are having to rethink whether they can go ahead because of the cost of premiums. And you say that defending a personal injury action against you is a heads they win, tails you lose scenario. Absolutely. Uh, the, the first thing is you're absolutely right to, because we constantly have to emphasise that people represent this issue as purely having financial consequences. We say, no, listen, you, you actually have to sit down and consider the much broader uh, sweep of, of effects this is having in society, such as uh, stopping people playing, uh, kids playing in school. I mean, that is how basic it is becoming now. Um, so um, we, we really do have to rethink where where we are on this, this is having a damaging effect on society and this is changeable. And you were saying that the situation is being exploited by lawyers. Uh, what about the Maria Bailey case and the questions uh, for a government minister? Because as you say, the government has a significant role in all of this and there's questions about Josepha Madigan's firm and as to whether they advised Maria Bailey. Well, look, I... I Honestly, Michael, the, the Maria Bailey thing and Swingate has been going on, on now effectively for two continuous weeks. And it has almost become a position where a plaintiff has been treated as the victim rather than, you know, the, the real victims across the board in this are those businesses who are being, and I, I, I tell members of the media that every mm. single day of the week there's a letter coming through the uh, uh, post box of a small business with a claim for defamation or a claim for personal injuries. Some of them are false, some of them are exaggerated. Mm. Every single one of them. Ah, sure, it's mad. I, I was just talking to Vincent Jennings earlier on of uh, the Convenience Stores and News Agents Association. He, and he was telling me that if I walk into his shop today and he accuses me of trying to steal a bag of crisps, and there's no proof of that, that I could sue him for three thousand euro. I, I, absolutely, and they, those cases tend to be settled. We we only see in in the media the landmark cases where. And I'm not going to name the mm. names, but you and I both know the mm. names of the big firms with deep pockets that can afford to go to the High Court and can afford to go to the Court of Appeal. We brought a small businessman into the Joint Directors Committee uh, who was sued for defamation, fought the case, and the case was th- absolutely thrown out by the judge who, who had scathing remarks uh, for the person who brought the defamation action. But within a couple of days, he had a call from that person's solicitor who said, we're going to take it to the High Court. Yeah. High Court costs are now being used as a weapon. You may have seen Cheaper that. to settle. It's it's it not it's simply unaffordable to fight in mm. many cases. You're being extorted and blackmailed out of money by people that you know don't have a leg mm. to stand on and are totally misrepresenting 
dishonestly representing a case against you. There was another report of that in, in yesterday's um, Independent about people. The CCTV showed uh, an absolutely minor collision between two cars in a car park mm. that resulted in multiple high court claims. And don't forget, mm. you know, they're the ones that exceed €60,000. Now, it was thrown out in the circuit court on foot of CCTV evidence. So, mm. you know, with all due respect to the solicitor representing uh, that client, unless they're blind and they can't see the CCTV, we have the greatest of difficulty in accepting that that solicitor does not know that they're representing an exaggerated, if not a false claim. And there's another part to this, uh, I think, uh gather it's the case from reading your article yesterday at least Neil that if it's thrown out of uh, the circuit court uh, you may have been lucky in defending yourself uh, and lucky to have got the judge that you got uh, unfortunately, this is a reality. It is well known to any anyone in business who has had to um, defend the case. When it is listed and you show up on the day, um, your case really is in the lap of whatever judge is is sitting in the circuit or the high court, and they are well known. Um, their their sympathies are well known in advance. And like it or not, there are certain judges that will almost invariably uh, find uh, on behalf of the uh, will find on behalf of the uh, plaintiff, and there are others who mm. who give the case a fair hearing. But we very rarely hear of anyone who's who's you know just throwing out any sort of any half decent plaintiff case. Nor are we suggesting that that would be a just or a proper thing to do. But what we are saying is judges are are meant to be impartial and to ensure a thing called a, a legal phrase called equality in arms it simply doesn't happen before our courts you suggest that lawyers operate a don't ask don't tell policy and they do so at significant gain uh, you've been doing the sums what are legal costs worth in terms of personal injury claims well, the, the figures we're using go back to 2015 because, uh, and this is why where the politicians come back in, there's no longer a thing called a blue book published by the central bank which shows the profit and loss and expenses of the insurance companies. So while there's a lot of hot air between the lawyers and the insurers about what's, what's going on, we just lack the data to say exactly what's going on. But using the 2015 figures, and r- removing um, removing uh, life insurance and health insurance costs from the uh, from from the claims paid by insurance companies, we get what you would call non-life or, or liability insurance costs, and take forty percent of that, which is what the cost of insurance working group and the personal injuries commission and a lot of other trustworthy parties say is is the cost the legal cost of litigation 40% you're left with 350 million per annum in 2015 euros now so that that those figures are 4 years old and that's what that is the cash flowing into the legal sector uh, from personal injuries actions on an annual basis it's a massive amount of money and if you divide that by the number of solicitors and barristers in the state you get 28,000 per head. But in reality, more than half of the lawyers in the state practice in-house. 
in other words, they don't uh, they don't do this sort of thing. They work for a bank or an insurance company or whatever. So in reality, at every on average, every lawyer in the state is making fifty six thousand or more euro per annum out of personal injuries costs. Okay, and you mentioned uh, the recommendations uh, that Justice Kearns made. Uh, you listed them in uh, your article, or six of them in your article yesterday. If you were to pick one thing that government could do overnight to help reduce the cost of claims uh, and indeed the costs that we end up paying in uh, additional uh, premiums, uh, what would you do? Well, the, uh, it's certainly not our idea, Michael. It's, it's uh, Nicholas Kearns' uh, uh, thing. Quantum has to come down. His first recommendation to government last July before it was redacted by a person or persons unknown was to bring in a legislative cap on damages. There's a senator uh, who has brought in a private member's bill, Senator Anthony Lawler uh, from NACE, to cap damages. And despite the fact that he's a government senator, uh, it appears now that the government wants to kick this into the long grass and send it to the Law Reform Commission, where lots of worthy people will study that for the next three or four years. So it really does look, from where we're sitting now, Michael, unfortunately, it looks like we're getting a lot of kind words, but we're not getting any action. Cap damages. We, we, that, that bill could be passed before the end of this doll if they wanted to, but they don't seem to want to. Neil, thank you indeed for joining Thanks, us Michael. this morning. Neil MacDonald is the Chief Executive Officer of ISME. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the concerns uh, that some parents of uh, children in Rathoth College have uh, about uh, the children being taught with iPads instead of textbooks. Uh, a number of parents met last night because of uh, these concerns. And we'll hear more about this now with Nicola Kerens, who's got two children in Rathoth College at the moment and uh, a third child who's due to start there in September. Nick Killian is an independent councillor and a member of the board of management of the school and you're both very welcome to the program this morning Nicola uh, tell us what uh, the concerns are first of all please well Rattles College have implemented an iPad only policy for teaching up to junior cycle since 2014 by iPad only I mean the iPad is the primary learning tool it has no textbooks on it it has no ebooks on it and teach or Parents are not uh, um, afforded a book list where you could go and buy selected textbooks. The lived experience of parents, and there is a growing swell of concern amongst parents, is supported by an already troubling body of evidence that is coming internationally and nationally, which says that we need to err on the side of caution, that students do not perform as well or learn as effectively from a screen. And unfortunately, that is one element of mm. a myriad of potential problems. And this is your view as a, a parent, but also as a professional, I gather, because I understand uh, that you're a former school inspector and indeed a former teacher. Yes, I am. I am a qualified teacher and I've worked with the Department of Education and Science in the area of the inspectorate and also with the State Exams Commission. Okay, and um, when you say the iPads don't have textbooks, how are children actually using them to learn? Well, they have a platform on it that's called Schoology, which is basically um, a platform onto which the teachers can upload content and the teachers and the year group can communicate with each other. So they have virtual filing cabinets into which they're 
put virtual files depending on the content that the teacher uploads. They then, uh, well, that's the crux uh, Mm. there because you are now relying on your teacher to be able to provide the same breadth and depth and quality of content as is afforded to a student who's sitting down in a classroom with a published textbook. Um, I, and I am not, this has nothing to do with mm. the, the teachers themselves. This is simply a fact. We are reliant on the teachers to be able to replicate that content and upload it and share it with our children. And that includes new teachers that come to the school, etc., etc. Mm. I've asked the question as uh, to how that's policed in the school, how that's monitored. Mm. Does, d- does it I, mean, though, that they could upload e-books, that they could effectively have the textbooks on their iPads? Oh, they could, but we don't pay for the license. Well, that, that was my that. next question. Okay, so uh, and, and there, there, be copy, we, there would be copyright issues. I, I there gather. is copyright issues, but it uh, doesn't matter in our school because despite a code of ethics that is in the school deal and students are frequently instructed to take screenshots of published textbooks and airdrop them to their classmates. Right. Uh, that in itself, uh, I, I, I don't know if there's a copyright issue over that. Uh, that's... Uh, a grey area, is it not? For itself. I'm so, yeah, but it, it would be a grey area. I don't know if it would be a breach of copyright, would it? And just just to get back to your previous mm. point, the most recent research, the Stavanger Declaration, has urged extreme caution in relation to how we implement technology in classrooms mm. and has said that students do learn better from printed text than on a digital screen because they can engage with the physical text, they can analyse it, note take on it, etc etc they are denied that opportunity when they're scrolling through an ipad screen what they are doing there is what's called skim reading they are not absorbing the information to the same level they're not comprehending it to the same level and they are not empathizing with it at the same level and that is a fact and the oecd conducted a study in 2015 Mm. and the, the findings of that said yes there is a place for technology in the classroom and all of us parents are not anti-technology. Mm. We are not technology bashing or anything like that. But what that study said, and it's backed up by the Stavanger Declaration, is that the place for the iPad or for the technology is in the hands of the teacher to complement traditional teacher-led instruction and then to be used selectively by the teacher if you want to investigate inquiry-based learning, which is fundamental to the new junior cycle. So in other words, if you want to get them to investigate something in science or to look Mm. at a particular um, experiment that's being carried out or analyse something, well, then you then use those iPads. But they are in the hands of the teacher, they remain in school and they are used appropriately in the classroom. In Ratoff College... What was that declaration? The Stavanger Declaration? Stavanger Declaration. What's that exactly? The Stavanger Declaration is a study of um, 54... It's the OECD study, is it? No, the OECD study was carried out um, by PISA, which is the main body that um, okay. that re- report on all of the findings. They, they, their study was across 72 European countries, mm. and it, it, it analysed the performance of 15-year-olds in those countries, and they showed specifically that they did not perform as well as their book-based counterparts. Okay, I want to ask uh, Nick Killian to respond. Before I do, you said all of us parents. uh, How many people are you talking about? Well, I I can tell you this is a national issue, not just a local issue, but there was over 50 parents at the meeting last night, and there was dozens of 
messages sent apologising for not being able to be present but lending their support. Okay, Nicola, thanks. Uh, Stay on the line. Uh, Nick Killian, what do you make of all of that? Uh, Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Nicola. Um, From the perspective of the Board of Management, that's where I would be talking from this morning. Um, I suppose what what Nicola has commenced here is a, a very important debate on the use of iPads and technology generally in our schools. But this follows on from uh, a circular that was issued last year by, by the department in relation to um, a consultation with the school community, including teachers, students and parents in the use of smartphones and tablet devices in schools. And Rathoats College um, in the earlier part of the year decided that a survey would be carried out and this survey uh, was sent out to all of the parents and uh, was sent back in to the Board of Management um, at its last meeting. Now, the result from that particular meeting was, because obviously we... we um, sorry about that. Uh, obviously, from that particular meeting, um, the parents were invited to... Nicola being one of the parents and two other parents, to make a presentation, which they did. And they we weren't invited, out. Nick. Pardon? Well, you were there at the invite of the chair. And the situation is... you. Well, what was the result of the survey of parents, Nick, first of all? Well, to be honest with you, the actual survey is is quite varied. It's about 30 pages in length, and there's quite a lot of documentation in that and support it. So there's no clear-cut result? There's no clear-cut result. Right, okay. But from that, we we looked at that, I suppose, at the end of the day as phase one, and taken on board the concern of... um, Well, phase two surely should hear the arguments against that Nicola has been making today, would you agree? Well... Nicola's arguments today are about the use of it. I'm not um, competent to talk about it from a classroom perspective because, number one, I'm not a teacher or a student. That would be the same of all of the parents. Uh, So, I I mean, when you ask people for their opinion, uh, there's an informed opinion and an uninformed opinion. Uh, If Nicola is given the opportunity to outline her concerns to parents, maybe they'll make their decision uh, based on more information that they receive from her, that's you're you're, you're quite right in, in outlining what what Nicola has has done, and she's done a fine job in informing the parents. But I'm talking, as I said to you, from a border management perspective, and but the decision that we took at our last border meeting, because this was the first opportunity that we had as a board to discuss this. I, I'd like to come in there, if I may, please. Are you I sure, but I'm, ju- I'm just not sure what Nick is saying. What, 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 what? So you're saying that the board has made a decision, Nick? Is it? No, the board made a determination at its last meeting that yeah. we would continue on with further investigations. Okay. In relation to. Okay, so th- so this hasn't been decided fully yet. No, it hasn't. And the situation for for going forward is that in August. Um, the board recommended that an independent chair. No, let me that an independent chairperson would be appointed, and that they would carry out uh, in August an, an investigation. Mm. Okay, Nicola. To report in December to report in October with with uh, an interim report and a final report, which would then go to the LMETB to d- make a decision as regards. Okay, to let Nicola come back there. Forward. Nicola, you're disputing what you're hearing. I can tell you that I have made representations via, to the school via the Parents Association AGM every year since 2014. I have those AGM minutes in my hand. Those questions remained unanswered. They were in and around how is the policy reviewed, how is it analysed, 
How do we guarantee that the students are all receiving equal content in their classrooms? Uh, to say that it only became before the board in May is, is downright not true. I'm sorry, the parents have true. The parents sought, have asked individually for, uh, for support from the school, for a response from the school in this issue, and they have been led to believe that they are the only people complaining. And by that, then, you divide and conquer. So that parent goes away and they feel, it must be me, it must be my child. Well, actually, it isn't you and it isn't your child. And arising out of this, we can see exactly how Ratope College operates in hearing parents' concerns. They do not hear them. There okay. is a parents' association there. Okay, uh, have that. Let, let Nick to... come back there because he's saying that it did come before the board in May and not before that. Is that right, Nick Killian? That's correct. Yeah. It did I mean, come before this the board was not brought before to that. Our attention until uh, in, until May. As, as a board? As a board, as a board right. of management. Now, mm. there, there may have been contact between the... Undoubtedly there was. The I parents think that's clear listening to Nicola. Uh, I wouldn't be aware of that. But, but that sounds as though it was that. remiss on somebody's part that it didn't come before the board as a board. Well, it didn't come before the board and wasn't brought to our attention until uh, a formal uh, letter was written by Nicola uh, to the Board of Management and it was only at that particular point. A lot of other parents as well wrote. We can't find out how much that, how many parents did write. Oh, I know the parents. Furthermore, a, 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 a number of parents, this exploded on social media in March and people were encouraged to send their emails in due process. This is the procedure. If you have a concern, you bring it to directly to the school. Parents were getting no response when they brought it on a one-to-one basis. So therefore, they went to their next port of call, their parents' association, who is tasked with representing their interests and who also has a very important statutory role in influencing policy. Parents were invited to email the parents' association, which they did, very many of them. That parents' association had a meeting on the 26th of March. Unfortunately, the parents' association representatives that sit on the board were not present at that meeting, and that's perfect. Acceptable and understandable. Okay, Nicola. The Nicola, I'm sorry. Nicola, I'm sorry to. Nicola, I'm sorry to cut across you. Uh, uh, and uh, maybe you'd allow me to make a, a suggestion uh, because I don't think we're going to solve it right here, right now. Uh, you mentioned uh, that you've already had an awful lot of interaction on social media. Uh, how would it sound to you if we make uh, an audio version of uh, this interview available to you to put on your social media sites uh, and ask people to sign up to it, and then maybe come back to us next? week and let us know what kind of response you've had there. Well, I think that we've probably already overtaken you in that, if you don't mind, because a petition has been drawn up around okay. the meeting yesterday. Okay. And that petition is going to be signed and submitted to the Board of Management and to the LMETB. And what Nick is saying there okay. is he might be saying that we're kicking the can down the road to uh, establish why this consultation okay, is but, uh, but the school but, uh, are but, uh, going ahead with their okay, policy but I, I ha- coming I, first year I have to, I have to move on to another issue, issue Nicola you'll have to forgive me for that uh, but perhaps uh, we can go back to it next week uh, with uh, further response and Nick Killian I, I'm sure that uh, the Board of Management uh, will be represented if we do that as well Absolutely All right. Thank you Thank you indeed Thank to you. both of you Nicola Kearns who's uh, one of uh, the parents of uh, some children in Rathoth College Nick Killian is a, a member of the Board of Management. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, to a motion that was brought before the Senate on mental health services uh, in two parts. One of uh, the elements of uh, this was uh, the health serv- mental health services uh, available uh, to uh, refugees and asylum seekers in uh, this country, and it uh, called on the introduction of early and adequate assessment of asylum seekers for mental health issues and referrals when needed. That specialised services such as psychotherapy for survivors of torture and other violence could be accessed by people who need them and that interpreters would be available. The motion was brought forward by Independent Senator Rona Mullen who joins us now. And a very good morning to you, uh, Rona Mullen, and uh, thanks for joining us here today. It seems as though the response to you was that mental health services are available to everybody in this country on an equal basis. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Minister Jim Daly took the motion and you get the usual um, presentation of government statistics putting the best possible uh, light on things. But um, the reality is this was a motion, as you said, with a number of parts. It was, uh, first of all, about mental health services generally in the country because they have been, you know, the bridesmaid, so to speak, in terms of the allocation of public funding. Uh, And I was pointing out various things like that, for example, Uh, that in the 1980s, the percentage of the health budget spent on mental health was twice what it is today. It's about 6.6% of the mental health budget today. It was 13% in the 80s, and we're spending 10% less uh, last year on mental health uh, than was spent in 2009. So there's a lot of issues there, and we know about the shortfall of uh, of consultant psychiatrist places. There's about Mm -hmm. 20% of of posts unfilled, and, and indeed of those that are filled, about a third are filled by locums. And, you know, we have the lowest allocation of inpatient beds or the fourth lowest in Europe, um, etc., etc. But I did want to focus in particular on the particular needs of persons, asylum seekers, people in direct provision, and also on young people, because, you know, there are some very worrying things around young people's mental health. We're about 84 uh, young people admitted last year to adult um, uh, places, which is not acceptable. Mm. You, you know, you have a, uh, an increasing concern about the mental health of young people at schools. There need for you know, more and better facilities there. Young people waiting a long, you know, involved in self-harm, waiting a long, long time for um, a, a, an appointment with a psychiatrist and, and, and parents and families at their wits end what to do and so on. The Minister's re- response to you, though, oh, uh, was yes. a considered response and it was that you were wrong. And it, it was a considered response uh, because he said that he was flanked uh, by some officials, Jerry Stedman and Michael Merkin, uh, who had both helped him to prepare his response to you. And he said that in 2006, it all changed with the vision for change approach that was taken by government. So you're not comparing like with like when you talk about uh, the allocation of funding in the 1980s or how services are delivered. Uh, And when it came to people seeking asylum in this country, the mental health services available to them are no different than to the general population. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, you know, a, a, a carefully prepared response is not is not uh, the same thing as an adequate response. I mean, it, it, it's fine for the minister to say that a vision for change uh, came along in 2006. But the point about the vision for change is that the delivery across all of its core elements has been partial. A huge amount uh, remains to be done. You have its progress hindered by severe uh, staff shortages and indeed the funding cuts mm. during the recession. And I just mentioned like the children continue to be admitted into adult mental 
health inpatient services, 84 in 2018. So, you know, I, I, I did make that point to the minister that you can massage statistics to make things look good, but, but, but some facts speak for themselves, like, for example, the many, many consultant psychiatry uh, places uh, that aren't filled. But to come on to the issue of direct provision, mm. the, the, the issue is that those people have particular needs. And what one of the things I was calling for would that there would be a designated a consultant psychiatrist identified in each area where a, a direct provision reception centre is located that would allow and ensure early and adequate assessment of asylum seekers mm. for mental health issues because the reality is many of them um, have particular um, I- I- issues. Well, uh, some of them would have been tortured uh, exactly. in, in war-torn countries or saw their parents uh, shot in front of them or were raped as a war crime. Precisely. They, it, it was a 2016 paper from the Faculty of Public Health at the College of Physicians that said that refugees and asylum seekers um, have unique and complex physical and mental health needs and they need specific and comprehensive health care attention and mentioning exactly what you mm. said fleeing war and persecution traumatic circumstances and the College of Psychiatrists pointed out in 2017 of course that children are the free, frequently forgotten element of the migrant crisis. So you have a situation where waiting times uh, in, in direct provision centres have reduced somewhat, but people are still waiting for between 18 and 20 months for an initial hearing. Now, if you're a child stuck in that system, that's a huge portion of a young life spent lost in the limbo of direct provision. And failure to deal with a child's mental health needs can result in the storing up of social difficulties and, and mental pain and serious problems for them and for society mm. in the future. So that, that but, is why I was focusing in particular seem, that... I, I understand that, but the Minister didn't seem to see that point or accept that point. He, he was saying uh, that there's a, a number of services and agencies uh, belonging to the state that provide services uh, to people in uh, direct provision centres or who are generally speaking are seeking uh, asylum in, in this country. Uh, but uh, some of them were unique, but when it came to mental health services, uh, it was the same service that was available to the general population. Yeah, and I mean, you see, the, 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 this is the point that where you have specific needs, you have to have specific responses. And that's why I was arguing that there should be an identified consultant psychiatrist in each area and that there should be specialised services such as psychotherapy for survivors of torture and other violence. The point isn't, it's it's not that there's no services available to people. Mm. It's that where you have particular needs, you should target particular services. And to give an idea of how hit and miss the whole system can sometimes be, like think of the fact that very often there aren't interpreters available to assist medical professionals and it's their own children that are acting as interpreters for their parents, you know, which I don't think is appropriate. I don't think most people would think it's appropriate. And yet that's the kind of thing that happens in our system. All right. Well, it's a very interesting and realistic aspect of life in this country for many people, unfortunately. Thank you for raising it with us here on the programme today. That's Independent Senator Rona Mullen, who brings our programme to its conclusion today, indeed, for this week. Hope you have a lovely long weekend and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Tuesday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. LMFM podcasts. Brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union. Getting hitched? Cartmacross Credit Union likes to say I do when financing your wedding loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or cartmacrosscu.ie.